Welcome to Trial by Wine. We take a closer look at crimes that highlight how fascinating humans can be. Schmitty, Swanee and Clarky visit crimes and run them through their jury of three, debating both sides of the case to agree an appropriate, if totally fictitious, sentence. Please be advised, Trial by Wine may include explicit or disturbing content and will include drunken rambling. Listener discretion is advised. All right, how are we? Yes, well, yes, yes, yes well, yes, well, yes. Thank you. I have a feeling this is going to be quick. That's right. It's a back-to-back. Uh-oh. So has anything amazing happened in the last 10 minutes? I've gone for uh, a drink. That's usually pretty amazing. Swanny's got a drink. What I've got is one it? Of my, I've got one of my Schmitty gifted bottles. So I've got a bottle of Rameau d'Or Cote de Provence Rosé. It looks Beautiful. like it's about two thirds empty. Did you just neck a whole lot of it, or <laughs> on the way up the stairs? Was that the last time you drank it? Yeah, yeah. She's very moderate compared to us. I don't know what I'm you're talking about. Drinker. Although I went to a lunch on Sunday or Friday, which <laughs> also, I told I'm you about. I'm not really a moderate I, drinker. <laughs> I felt so rough afterwards, but not like drunk. Like Jeremy told me it was because I'm an old woman, and or not. He didn't say I'm an old woman. He said <laughs> it's probably your age, and it was probably like acid. I felt. We got to a point, he came to meet me at a bar, and I looked at him and I went, I've got to go home, like, now. It just felt terrible all of a sudden. It was all, like, maybe it was. Yep. Bicarb soda. It was yep. not pleasant. And I, you know what it is? Teaspoon of bicarb soda. Swanee, Swanee. Some water. Yeah, Teaspoon tell me, tell me. Teaspoon of bicarb soda yeah. in a little bit of water. Neck it, tastes disgusting. You'll belch your guts out and yeah. then you'll it's feel amazing. Yeah, because it, it's yeah. A alkaline, so it, it immediately alkalines the acid. In it settles it all down. It great. And it was funny because my girlfriend who I was with, She'd stopped drinking that now before, and she said, "I just can't drink that." And I thought, "Sometimes oh, it's someone's awful. paid for it. I better." But it was not. It wasn't. You know, it wasn't pleasant. Don't you ever do that? Just carrying, go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if you're not carrying a lifetime supply of Rennies, then you need mm. to have your bicarb. Mm. Yeah. But I just didn't make that connection because it's not something that's normal. It would happen to me. Oh, it does. And to I, me, I got yeah. home and I was like, "Oh, I felt so rough. I had to watch. I don't know four apple, four or five episodes of Selling Sunset to to get over it. Okay, Selling <laughs> Sunset." That worked a dream. Okay. I haven't done anything much. I'm still on soda water and cordial and a, just a dash of vodka because I don't want to drink too much of it. What about you boys? What are you drinking? Uh, we're on the red. Yep. You know. You've moved on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yep. a wintry Sunday evening. Sunday Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and who are we? I'm Schmitty. I'm Swanee. And I'm Clarky. And together we are Trial by Wine. And yes, Clarky, <clears throat> have you got a story for us? You betcha. Do I ever. And which horrific serial killer are you covering today? <laughs> the answer to that is I don't know. Oh, no. Another <laughs> mystery wrapped in an enigma. It's something like that, yeah. So I'll get, I'll get on very quickly and start telling you about that. Right. But first, let me do my sources. So my sources are Bayside News, Victoria Police website, Wikipedia, yahoo.com, Herald Sun, uh, Case File Podcast, Episode 46, and Australian True Crime Podcast, and I can't remember the episode number, so apologies. You love a homegrown story, don't you? Oh, well, you know. so has so, got to do it. So last week, last week, last time I did my story, I did Paul, Paul Denyer, the Frankston yep. serial killer, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So through that research, I uncovered the Frankston Tainong North murders. <laughs> Not to be confused with, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, there is literally, if you Google it, either of them and the other ones come up and so you've got a 
got to have your wits about you. But but so about ten years earlier yeah, than yeah, Paul Denyer, yeah, yeah. there were a series of murders in Frankston and Tainong. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, a series of murders in predominantly eastern Melbourne that ended up centering around Frankston and Tainong North. And Where so, are you saying Tainong? Tainong, yeah. So T Y N O N G. Tainonga. Yeah, after you've done your cock off. Oh, Tainong. Then you're tired. <laughs> so, anyway, whilst I was in uh, the Frankston area of the globe, I thought I might as well tick off the two in, in successive uh, crimes. Mm. Frankie Town. I want mm-hmm. you to take me to Frankie um, Town. <clears throat> Yes. So I'm going to start uh, in 1979, Frankston. So we can take the timey whiny machine back there, Schmitty, if you could just mm-hmm. pop in the coordinates. Fire up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of a, a story around what was going on in Frankston at the time. So Not much. Well, you say <laughs> that, and I could understand why you would say that. <laughs> But there was some issues going on between the community and police at the time. So on the 5th of May, 1979, there were the Frankston riots where a justice of the police stood stood atop. (laughs) I looked at Swanee's face. She's like, what's been going on in Frankston? (laughs) Cronulla riots. I thought that was... Yeah. (laughs) Ah, Cronulla, they they were nothing. No, (laughs) not true. So a justice of the peace is standing atop a bonnet of a car in Frankston in Davies Street. He holds a megaphone. Was it a Ford? I can't remember. Wasn't it? It would have been probably an HZ Holden. Yeah, go on. Could well have been of the time. So Mm -hmm. he's holding a megaphone in one hand and literally the riot act in the other, um, announcing a formal warning for the crowd to disperse because after months of simmering tension, the situation that escalated into full-scale riot outside the police station. Can I, can I just take oh. a step back? You said a justice of the peace. My experience of a justice of the peace is a man who signs off, <laughs> notarises things for me. Yeah. Yes. Isn't a policeman generally or can be a policeman but is often, you know, a chemist or an yeah. accountant. Yeah. I, I think for the, the purpose of this story, let's say it was a chemist. Policeman? Oh, he's a chemist. Okay, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pharmacist and he won't yeah, sell right. you all the two drugs together, Swanee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. You, and he's saying, he's okay. saying you can choose between clear sinuses or no pain, pain. but you can't have both. That's right. <laughs> so there are several explanations for the riot. So the police say that a mob of drunken troublers spilled out from several pubs and they arrested some of them and the mob then attacked police in retaliation. Did you just make up a word? Maybe. Troublers. Did I say troublers? <laughs> oh, brilliant. A lot of troublers yeah, came well, out of the pub. <laughs> I, I think I think I just Was it took travellers. No, Was I, it took, to be- I just Trouble took makers. the word make out. <laughs> <laughs> Trouble makers. Troublers. Uh, yeah. I think we could use it a lot. Troublers. Oh, they were troublers. Yeah, they were troublers. Oh, they were troublers. I'm going to go with Wrong that. Troublers. They were troublers. Truth-stretching troublers. Yeah. Truth-stretches. That's exactly right. Yes. Anyway, so the troublers <laughs> attacked the police in retaliation. <laughs> so then there's another story of the rising tensions over a period of time because the police had been heavy-handed with youths in response to some street offences. And so... The reason I'm telling you this is there wasn't a strong relationship between the police and parts of the community, at least. On the other hand, Frankston was like any other suburb. So, Schmitty, to your point, not much, you know, (laughs) quite relaxed with a sense of innocence that I think was common at the time. And, you know, if you look at photos of Frankston back then, it's just those, you know, wide streets and 
and old cars and, and you know, not I crowded. I feel like it's quite far away from Melbourne as it is now today. So it would have felt moderately remote, I would have thought, in 79. Absolutely yeah. right. And so so the the talk of, of this area is, you know, there's some parts that are now absolute suburbs of Melbourne effectively, mm. but back then they were very rural. Yes, yes. And, and so Frankston being a Bayside yes. suburb was... Um, not rural, but it was very close to rural mm. um, suburbs. And Swanee, you know that Bilsey's from there. Yes, that I do know. She might have even been around at this time that we're talking about. Baby she would Bill. have been about five. She would have been baby Bilsey. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that's her little sister, though, but yeah. That's what she calls little the, sister. The OG baby Bills. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. If we now jump to May 1980, I'd like to talk murder, if that's okay. Ooh. <sighs> All right. <laughs> So we're going to start, so these are the Frankston and Tainong, Mur- Tainong North Tainong. murders. God, I'm mixing my words today. <laughs> so let's start with the Frankston ones, right? Was it the Tainong Troublers who did it? The Tainong <laughs> Troublers. <laughs> that, was, that was the footy club. It's the name of the restaurant. So first up, we've got Alison Rook. So Alison was a 59-year-old widow who lived alone in Frankston North. On the 30th of May 1980, Alison disappeared from the Frankston area. Her neighbour confirmed to police that she was headed to Frankston to pay bills and get groceries when she disappeared sometime after 11am. Alison usually drove, uh, but on the day she had car troubles which forced her to take public transport. So she was to catch a bus along Frankston Dandenong Road. However, the usual bus driver didn't remember picking her up and Alison never bought groceries or paid the bills on that day. Alison's daughter Elaine made numerous calls to her mother but couldn't get in touch with her. Elaine and her brother Keith went around to Alison's house because they were all going to catch up that night to go out and Alison's house was undisturbed. So she's completely Mm. missing, no sign of trouble at home or anything like that. Police were called and after a short investigation, they believed that Alison had been abducted whilst waiting for the bus. Mm. There were no witnesses, no suspicious people sighted, no strange vehicles, you know, acting in a, you know, driving in a weird way or anything like that, just completely nothing. And this is on Frankston Dandenong Road, which is a relatively busy road, perhaps not as busy, well, definitely not as busy back then, but one of the main roads in Frankston. Yeah. So in the middle of the day, yeah, it's eleven a.m. So it's very early, yeah, 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 correct. Um, so then, so yeah, broad daylight, you know, yeah. there, there would have been traffic. So then, on the fifth of July in nineteen eighty, a man was walking his dogs when he came across Alison's body partially oh. hidden in bushland at McClellan Drive, a few kilometres from where she was last seen. McClellan Drive runs off Sky Road, and I don't know if you recall from Paul Denyer's story, but that's just near where he attacked Natalie Russell on her way home from school. So we're you know, in, oh, in and about the same spot. Alison was found naked and her body was badly decomposed. There was no forensic evidence found. Inspector Murray Burgess, head of Frankston Criminal Investigation Branch, said at the time, I am disgusted. We have not received more help. Everybody just keeps on going about doing their own thing, not caring that they might be next. This is the worst crime I've seen in this town in the four years I've been here. Killer has struck once and we need help to catch him before he strikes again. So the, the police were trying to work with the community to find out what they could and basically oh, say yeah. they were getting nothing from it. Well, you get nothing because you're all being a-holes. Right, right, right. 
But, well, yeah, I think they just I weren't. I that was a bit rude, but now I realise you're reminded yeah, yeah. the context and, and that they weren't getting on with the Correct, person. and that's why I told that story at the start around mm-hmm. the Frankston riots because it is important, I think. So a post-mortem failed to determine a cause of death due to the state of the decomposition. The police announced a $50,000 reward for information that helped to catch the killer or killers, but no arrests were made. So then we moved to Joy Summers. So Joy Summers was 55 and lived in Frankston North, only one kilometre from Alison Rook's flat. She was going to the shops by herself on the 9th of October in 1981, so roughly 18 months later, when she disappeared. She had suffered a stroke a couple of years before she went missing and was usually accompanied by her friend William when she went shopping. William couldn't make it this day, which is why she was shopping alone. It was the first time she had to go to the shops by herself. Joy was last seen sitting at a bus stop on Frankston Dandenong Road at 1.20pm, just 100 metres from her home. It is believed she was taken from the bus stop as no bus drivers on the route remember picking her up. Similarly to Alison, police believe that Joy was abducted from the bus stop. Her friend, William, was adamant that she would not have gotten into a car with a stranger. Again, no one saw anything suspicious. Joy Summers was discovered on November the 22nd in 1981 in bushland off Sky Road in Frankston, approximately three kilometres from where Alison Rook was found. Her body was naked and again covered by branches. Police believed that the two murders were linked due to obvious similarities between the abductions and the subsequent disposals of the body. The theory was that Alison and Joy had accepted lifts from a killer, someone they felt confident to get into the car with, possibly a man dressed as a woman or a priest or something similar. Or a cab driver. Same, same. Hold that thought. Hold that Mm. thought. So at the time, it was common for people to offer lifts to older women. So back back in, you know, early 80s in, in, I guess, in Australia, you'd get people who would go, I see someone who I think needs help to on a lift. And there were plenty of people doing that at the time. So it wasn't unusual for women to get into a car with a stranger. Uh Police appealed to the public, especially any older women who had been offered lifts in the area, obviously hopeful that someone had been offered a lift and refused and therefore be able to assist with what what they had seen and and whether or not they could give any leads to identify the killer. Unfortunately, nothing. So two murders in Frankston, both taken to public transport, uh, both uh, bodies found 18 months apart, no information as to how these things happen. So then we go to Tainong North murders. So so first up, there's Bertha Miller, who was 73. Bertha lived with her brother-in-law, William, in Glen Iris and was a very active member of the Spring Wesleyan Street Mission in Paran, a church she'd attended for 48 years. On the 10th of August 1980, Bertha went to catch her usual tram from High Street in Glen Iris to Paran, which she did every week on Sunday to attend church. And she would always meet her close friend, Jessie Moore, on the way. So Bertha would get on the tram and a few stops later, Jessie would get on the tram and they'd go in together. Uh, When Jessie boarded the tram, Bertha was not there. Bertha was last seen by a shopkeeper walking to the tram stop. It is believed she was taken from the tram stop as she waited. Her brother-in-law was adamant that she would not have got into the car with a stranger. Bertha was also the aunt of Victorian Police Commissioner Mick Miller, so quite a strong link, obviously, back to the police (laughs) in in that regard. Mick, I I don't go into a lot of detail about this, but Mick was very much not wanting to get involved and influence the investigation, rather leaving it to the detectives to do their job. But again, no witnesses, no signs of a struggle, nothing suspicious. So often if there's an abduction that goes on, there might be, you know, a wallet falls out somewhere or or something happens and there's something that they can find that would 
help them understand exactly where it happened. Nothing again. So Glen Iris is an inner city suburb of Melbourne, I guess you would say now, probably, I don't know, half an hour or so, 45 minutes from Frankston in a car. So then that was the 10th of August 1980, 28th of August 1980, Catherine Headland, a 14-year-old girl, was due to work at her holiday job at Coles Fountain Gate when she disappeared. Headland had left home around 9.30 in the morning to go to her boyfriend's uh, where she was going to catch up with him and some friends. Catherine was from Berwick, so she's going from Berwick to her boyfriend's. At 11.10am, after a morning of listening to records and watching TV, Catherine headed to the bus stop on the corner of Monica Road and the Princess Highway. She was to catch the 11.20am bus, but was never seen again. At the time, people came forward with sightings. So some of them were that Catherine had been seen about eight kilometres away in Narry Warren around 2.30pm on that day. Another sighting was a bus driver who claimed that he picked up Catherine and a blonde girl, so with Catherine, uh, at a bus stop approximately 800 metres from the one that she was to get on. Another bus driver was adamant that he had seen her hitchhiking later that day. However, Victoria Police ruled that the sightings were unreliable and it was most likely Catherine never got on the bus. Anne-Marie Sargent, 18-year-old, was between jobs when she disappeared on the 6th of October 1980. She lived in Cranbourne and was a frequent hitchhiker. So Cranbourne, again, is is that sort of outer eastern suburb. Don't hitchhike. Well, he was common at the time, right? Not not everyone. So dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's believed she got a lift from Cranbourne to Dandenong the day she went missing. She was supposed to be going to the unemployment office to collect a cheque and she did actually get to the unemployment office in Dandenong and she lodged a form, so there was proof that she'd been there. So they think she got a lift there and then uh, from there she went missing. Anne-Marie had an operation a while back and she had a plastic tube that was in the back of her head to drain fluid from her brain. That becomes significant later, so just, just hold that thought. Again, no witnesses to her disappearance, nothing suspicious, couldn't provide police with any leads. Then we go to Naramal Stevenson. So Naramal Stevenson was 34. She was Thai and was married to Wayne Stevenson, where she lived on a farm in Dean's Marsh. So Dean's Marsh is on the western side of Melbourne, down near Lawn, so probably a couple of hours from drive uh, from Melbourne, so opposite side to Frankston. She'd been in Australia for over a year before she went missing from a house in Brunswick on the 29th of November in 1980. Naramal and her husband were visiting Melbourne and stayed with friends in Camberwell. Camberwell is not far from Glen Iris, which is where Bertha. The next day they went to visit friends in Park Street in Brunswick. Naramal had bought ingredients for a Thai meal that she planned to cook everyone that night. However, instead... The Wayne and, and friends went out drinking. So this led to a disagreement between Naramal and Wayne, and Naramal stayed in the car while the others went inside. Wayne uh, did come out to check on Naramal several times. So one time he came out to find her walking down the street in the direction from the 7-Eleven, so she's obviously gone to grab something. Another time she was talking in Thai to another man who had a European accent. Wayne decided, to, after that one, he's decided to stay in the car where he fell asleep. They, they both had a bit of a sleep. Then he went inside to have a, a further sleep. Naramal remained in the car again. After 6am, he went down to see Naramal, but she was gone. There were again no witnesses, no signs of a struggle, and nothing suspicious to assist police. At the time, and due to the unusual circumstances, the police weren't even sure that they had a missing persons case on their hands. So the Tainong North, we've got... F- Tainong North. Tainong North. <laughs> 
We've got four females who have disappeared when attempting to catch public transport or hitchhiking. Three of the women were Caucasian. One was Thai. Their ages ranged between 14 and 73. So n- no, no similarities really. At this stage, police had not linked the disappearances of Bertha, Catherine, Anne-Marie and Naramal. The link between the disappearances came on the 6th of December 1980 when the bodies of Bertha, Catherine and Anne-Marie were found. So up until that point, you've got disappearances, no certainty of murder or anything like that. Let's go to the 6th of December. So Catherine Headland, Anne-Marie Sargent and Bertha Miller were found together by men disposing of sheep offal at a remote quarry off Brew Road, Tainong oh. North. As, as they walked down a track, they noticed two bodies. Anne-Marie and Bertha were found right next to each other. Anne-Marie was naked, however, Bertha was fully clothed. Both women had one arm across their chest and the other one lying by its side. And then they rang the police. Police came. Next day they did a, a widespread investigation or search of the, of the area, sorry, and located Catherine's body approximately 15 metres away. All three bodies were badly decomposed. Anne-Marie was identified by the plastic tube in her head that I spoke of earlier. Bertha was identified by the dress she was wearing and a hair sample that they took that matched a brush that they found at her home. And Catherine was identified by jewellery and dental records. All three were not buried but covered by scrub. So the two Frankston killings, similar scenario. I guess what surprised the police at the time was the significant age gaps between the women initially believing they would all be young and the killer was possibly sexually motivated. Once they found out who the women were, then they obviously realised that the the ages were were quite far apart Mm. um, and they couldn't determine a cause of death for any of the victims. So police confirmed they were looking at similarities between these three murders and that of Alison Rook from Frankston. So this is 1980 still, so we haven't got to the murder of Joy Summers. So a special operations group was set up in Russell Street headquarters, which as... Schmidt, you would know, Swanee perhaps not, was mm-hmm. the police headquarters at the time in the city, mm-hmm. and approximately 25 police were involved in the initial investigation. The police set up a roadblock at the, uh, sorry, on Sunday the 14th of December in Glen Iris, near the home of Bertha Miller, in an attempt to find more information. It had been four months since she disappeared, and police were hopeful that someone would remember something. Through that roadblock, they learned that Bertha had accepted rides from strangers in the past. They spoke Mm -hmm. to a number of people who had given her lifts. This was obviously in direct contradiction to the brother-in-law's statement earlier who'd said that um, she absolutely She would never take a ride from anyone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Police then set up a roadblock in Dandenong to try to find out information about Anne-Marie and they also set up a dummy wearing the same clothes as Catherine Headland uh, in Narry Warren in the hope that people might be able to remember something from the day. Witnesses came forward, Schmidty, to say that a white taxi, possibly a Holden Kingswood, had been, <laughs> sp- <laughs> had been spotted near where the bodies were found on three Kingswood occasions. Country. Yeah, yeah. But on three occasions, it corresponded with the times of the killings. Was it an HZ or an HQ? Yeah. Doesn't say. <laughs> Damn it. The taxi company said that some taxi drivers offered free lifts to women and that this was known to happen in the Tainong North area. However, they were not able to identify the taxi nor the driver. So Naramal Stevenson was found in February 1983, two years and three months after the original Tainong North discovery. Barry Davis was driving when he had a flat tyre on the trailer he was towing. So he pulls over, his mate who was with him goes off to see if he can borrow a jack from someone so they can change the tyre. 
and Barry decides to go for a walk to stretch his legs. He walks up a truck approximately 50 metres from the road, comes to a dead end, turns around and notices a bone uh, in in the ground. He, at the time, was teaching anatomy and physiology and immediately recognised the bone as a human thigh bone. So this spot, whilst different to the other three women, was still in Tainan North and approximately two kilometres away from the other bodies. She was again naked and covered by branches. There was no evidence at the scene and her body was badly decomposed. She was identified by dental records. Let's just go back and, and review the timeline. So... 30th of May, Alison Rook disappears. 5th of July, 1980, Alison's body is found. Uh, 20, sorry, 10th of August, 1980, Bertha Miller disappears. 28th of August, Catherine Headland disappears. 6th of October, 1980, Anne-Marie Sargent disappears. 30th of November, 1980, Naramal Stevenson disappears. 6th of December, 1980, the bodies of Bertha, Catherine and Anne-Marie are found. 9th of October 1981, Joy Summers disappears. 22nd of November 1981, Joy's body is found. And the 3rd of February 1983, Naramal Stevenson's body is found. With the exception of Naramal, all of the women were last seen between 9am and midday and had the intention of getting public transport. So Mm. broad daylight, you know, quite incredible. Now we've got six females all taken from the road and found in the Tainong North area. The killer had removed personal items from each of the victims, but that's where the similarities ended. The lack of similarities between the victims uh, is thought to be due to the opportunistic nature of the crime. So rather okay, than going looking for a specific type, anyone who'll yeah. get in the car. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that also made it quite difficult for the investigators to find the criminal. Police, though, were very thorough with their investigation, conducting over a 1,000 interviews, and there were... 11,400 pages of notes and documents relating to the investigation. However, again, still very little evidence and the opinion was divided over whether they were dealing with one killer or two and possibly three. And so there's, there's the three theories about this. The, the one murderer theory is that someone killed all six women uh, and that's the current theory supported by Victorian police. The two murderer theory is that the Tainong North victims, although the are different to the ones in Frankston. And there was a lot of support for that theory as well. And then there's a three murderer theory, which is the Frankston and Tainong North, a murders being committed by separate individuals, and Naramal Stevenson um, being a, a killed by a third killer because she was taken in Brunswick. Um, Naramal Stevenson was considered to be the outlier taken well outside the area and time zone that the murder had previously operated in and her circumstances didn't match the other women. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that it's possible that Naramal got out of the car and went to get public transport to get to wherever she wanted to go, and I don't know if, if that's true. There's no, certainly no evidence of that, but it's quite possible then that she was picked up roadside or, or waiting for public transport. Um, Naramal Stevenson's remains were not found in the same state as the other women in Tainong, so while the killer had taken her time. She was found in Victoria. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yes. So while the killer had taken her time hiding the bodies of the others, Naramal was found a 30-second walk from the main road and no care was taken with hiding her remains. They say that, but obviously she was the last one to be found too. So the the spot where she was dumped whilst it was close to the road was was obviously not frequented. It was theorised that Naramal's killer may have intended to take her to the brew ride Brew Road disposal site, 
but was spooked by another person in the area and then hastily placed her body at the second location. A 1985 inquiry uh, into the murders found that they were caused by three separate offenders. So this is that there was another inquiry done that I think suggested two, and now they're uh, all considered to be or all assumed to be done by the same person. In 2017, in conjunction with the release of a $1 million reward per victim, Victoria Police said they were, they were just one suspect. In 1988, after you know the, the case had gone cold, there wasn't really much being said about it, a Christmas card was sent to Catherine Headland's family with a handwritten mm. note that read, oh. I hope in writing to you I do not cause you or your family any stress. I can comprehend the pain, the agony you have endured to lose a loved one, Catherine, not knowing when or if the perpetrator, singular or plural, will ever be caught. Well, the new year will be a good one for you. Things may unfold. The name of the perpetrator whose deeds make True Road look like kids' stuff. I'll keep in touch sometime in the new year. Signed, Anonymous Friend. Piss off. So Truro is another similar situation whereby in Adelaide, in a, in a place I think called Truro, five women went missing and their bodies were found dumped in bushland. Five months later, the Christmas card was followed up with a typed letter to the Victorian Police Commissioner. It was received on the 30th of May, 1989. Is the Tynong file gathering dust? Have you ran into a dead end? Need help? With a multitude of questions but very few answers. Did you know that you're dealing with mass murder in a scale never seen in this country? Only the top of American serial killers surpassed this cold-blooded killer. Did you know, and then there's a name that has been blacked out um, by police, so in the file. Redacted, yeah. Was another victim and others across three states. Did you find the brooch that Bertha Miller was wearing on the day of her murder or the sterling silver bluebird earrings belonging to Catherine? So that's the typed letter that the police commissioner gets. Police had found the earrings but hadn't found the brooch. They believed the writer had intimate knowledge of the murders and hoped they would come forward with more information. The letter had been sent a couple of weeks after a special on Jack the Ripper had aired on TV, and in that special it made mention of the taunting letters he'd sent to Scotland Yard Police. There was speculation that the killer had murdered in other states, and the case was referred to other states who reviewed old files looking for similarities with other missing persons. So... New South Wales and Queensland police were going back through a whole lot of missing persons cases to see if they could find anything. There was also a theory that a killer may have operated up and down the east coast of Australia. So 13 women were taken and murdered from highways uh, between 1972 and 1983, and all of those cases remain unsolved. On the 5th of June 1989, police revealed that they had identified the letter writer and that he was not responsible for the murders. He was, in fact, a prisoner at Pentridge Prison in Melbourne. He said he wrote the letter because he had sympathy for the families. The name that had been blacked out in the letter was Edwina Boyle, who had had last been seen in October 1983 in her home in Dandenong. Her body was later located in 2006 and her husband was charged and convicted for her murder, so she wasn't there. In 1998, a new task force, Lyndhurst, was created for the case charged with reviewing cold case files interviews and evidence. As a result of that, or as part of that, they sent a number of items to the forensics to look for DNA evidence. But despite the exhaustive efforts of different detectives over the years, no one has been charged with 
murder. It's one of the largest investigations that was conducted by Victoria Police at the time. The lack of evidence made it very difficult for them to determine what had happened. Police believe that the killer was sexually motivated and the, the victims were either strangled or stabbed, but there's no evidence of that. Would you like me to tell you about the main suspects? Please do. First one is Raymond Edmonds, who, Schmidt, you may know. Mr. Stinky. Because he was also known as Mr. Stinky. Yeah, correct. I was going to say, how did I know his name? That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he also, oh, did, did you know him as well? Well, you've brought it up before, but I, just the name sounded familiar. And I know, I, I know you've talked about Mr. Stinky. Yeah, yeah. But um, only in the context of hearing it here. Yeah. Yeah. He was also known as the Donvale Rapist. He was a rapist. Prefer, would you prefer to be called Mr. Stinky or the Donvale Or the Donvale Rapist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, 50 feet. Oh, come see, come oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say either of them float in the boat. <laughs> oh, no, but he farts a lot. Oh. Uh, he was a rapist and serial killer from Victoria who had committed violent and sexual crimes from the mid-1960s to the mid-1980s. He declined interviews with police after his conviction in 1986, and it wasn't until 2018 that he reached out to confess to a number of sexual attacks. Edmonds has presently been convicted of two murders, nine rapes, and a handful of other violent crimes against women. But police once believed that he may have been responsible for as many as 32 rapes and several unsolved murders. Edmonds was not believed to have been the offender in the Tainong North and Frankston murders as he had been living in New South Wales at the time of the murders. While there is the possibility that Edmonds returned to Victoria for the murders, police believe that he lacked the charm and interpersonal skills required to get the women into a vehicle. That reminds me of Swanee, your last episode with the varicose veins being the <laughs> distinguishing feature. Yeah. He lacks the charm and interpersonal skills to get people into a car. But do, do you want to lift? Fuck off, mate. You stink. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Apparently it was called that because he had really bad BO mm. and the, his victims reported that he stank. Yeah. Oh, that's so vile. It is vile, yeah. Ugh. So then there was Bandali Debs. So he was a man whose actions were once described by a New South Wales Supreme Court judge as lacking humanity. Debs is currently serving consecutive life sentences for the murders of two police officers and two sex workers in the mid to late 1990s. Debs was considered a suspect due to his penchant for opportunistic sexual violence and his proximity to the Princess Highway. Police believed he committed this, a series of violent armed robberies in the early 1990s with the help of his nephew, Jason Giller. Debs was in his late 20s when the Tainong North and Dandenong murders started in 1980, but his earliest violent conviction wasn't until 1988. The woman Debs murdered in Sydney was also found naked near a quarry similar to some of the victims found at Tainong North. And then our last one is Harold Janman. So unlike the other two suspects, Janman was never convicted of any violent crimes. The only blemish on his criminal record comes from soliciting sex work. The reason Janman became a key person of interest in the case was because he was well known for offering lifts in the area that the Frankston victims were taken from. Despite living in the Frankston area for over a decade at the time of the first disappearances, Janman only began offering people lifts in the same time frame as the murders. When interviewed, he claimed... Coinkydink. Correct. When interviewed, he claimed that he'd been to the bank in Frankston with his wife on the day that Joy Summers disappeared, an alibi supported by his wife. However, his bank records didn't tell the same story. I Did think they wife? actually... <laughs> to, Did what, her so, bank statements? Maybe they were no, looking at her yeah, bank no, account, not his. 
Yeah, no, so the bank the bank records showed that they went to the bank the day, the day before. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. While Janman had close ties to Frankston, he also had connections to Tainong North. In the late 50s to early 60s, Janman lived in Garfield, the area south of Tainong North on the opposite side of the Princess Highway. He had worked in the area at the Tainong Hotel and at the quarry where the Tainong North murderer would dispose of their victims decades later. In 1985, the first analysis of the case has stated, Darth's lack of physical evidence and eyewitness accounts linking him to either of the Frankston victims means it is unlikely he'll ever be charged with any offence or eliminated as a suspect. The report also stated that Janman was likely only responsible for the Frankston murders and the two other killers were responsible for the bodies of Tainong North. However, in 1990, a second report was not as kind to Janman and the analyst described him as a viable suspect with weak or non-existent alibis. It went on to say that the murders in Frankston and the three women found together in Tainong North were likely connected and that on the information available, Janman is the best nominated suspect for the offences. But all of the evidence against Janman was circumstantial. Gut feelings, odd behaviour and coincidences, or coinkydinks, Schmitty, don't make somebody a murderer. Harold Janman always maintained he was innocent and was not involved with the murders. Harold Janman died on Wednesday the 26th of August 2020, two days short of the 40th anniversary of Catherine Hedlund's disappearance. That's the summary of the suspects, and mm. that concludes the story of the Frankston Tainong North serial killer. Six known murders that are to this day unsolved. What do you think, Swanee? You're very quiet. I've oh, had a couple of couple of drinks, have a couple of sips of my wine, and I'm just <laughs> in a nice little warm yeah, space. Yeah, just a bit warm. Did you fall asleep? No, not at all. I just sort of. I'm just. Well, I'm not even frustrated. Normally, I'm frustrated. When I get to that. I'm just waiting. Like, they must know something. I mean, with such massive amounts of money being put up, you'd think there'd be something more that would have come forth in that time, wouldn't you? Yeah, what, Quite, what they were a saying. a long time ago. It is. And what they were saying is that the sort of 30 to 40-year window is often where people will come forth. So, you know, relationships yeah. change. It's a deathbed confession, whatever it Correct. might be. They've lived their life now, right? It's like I've got to get it off, my, get it off this, get it off my desk. Yeah, before I, again, exactly before right. I go, and go see the boss. Yeah, yeah. Or the other thing they'd say is that you know, if the killer was still alive, that might frighten people from coming forth with anything. But if yeah. the killer passes away, then very likely uh, people would be more comfortable to come forward. But they reckon now that it's sort of forty years plus ago, um, the likelihood of finding someone is very slim. Do you remember this from your childhood? Uh, this no. one I don't. No. Although, although saying that, when so one of the things I said at the start, Schmidt, was you know the, the man dressed up as a woman. Mm. I have yeah. a vague recollection of that, and so when that came up, I was like, oh, that that sort of rang a bell. But I there's don't. There's another. There's another really old. I thought Melbourne-based story about a man dressed as a woman right. killing killing women. Yeah. The white taxi seemed to trigger something in me where I felt like I'd heard that before, but I don't know if it was through that or having heard these stories before or just my childhood because the taxi was someone who people would trust to get in. Correct. And that felt familiar, like I'd yes. heard that discussed in my past somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, murder in May, August, another one in August, October and November in 1980, so quite short time frame, then one you know, nearly a year later. 
Well, you know, I mean, there is that question about whether they are all from the same person. I know that you're saying that the Victoria Police believe that that's the case right now, but it's difficult to know. Yeah, and, and obviously so they, they did do a number of inquiries into it and got different results each time kind of thing. So The only thing that would make me absolutely believe it is if you had DNA from all of them and it was matching DNA. Well, the, the other thing, though, that is possible is, you know, it, it is someone who's going up and down the East Coast mm. and, you know, they were in that area for a period of time and then off somewhere else. Mm. I agree. I think, I think, yeah, I hate mysteries. I must mm. <laughs> it leaves you, it's like a drawer at the footy. It just leaves I you empty. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. I don't, I how, don't do you sentence, like it. how do you sentence someone? Who do you sentence? Well, you That's can't right. because you don't know who did it. There is no. Well, I, I just hope whoever did do it came to a really bad end mm. in, in like some horrible, painful cancer or It is quite remarkable. I mean, yes, us. it's a long time ago now, but. Within our lifetimes, where there were plenty of things that could be solved, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, yeah, it yeah. just feel, it leaves me a bit empty. Yeah, I'm, there are others that I've been far more frustrated with because it was we were I felt like we were closer or we would get closer, and then it was wrong. Where this is like, yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> the, the other thing with your, it, your you, guess is good as mine, Mark. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have a have a shot. There was very little media coverage around it too. So mm. and I wonder relative that to Paul Denyard, that, well, that's interesting, yeah. They could have I, whipped that into a frenzy. That's what, That's why I'm sort of saying it, it's so remarkable that I don't know it as the great Australian crime that hasn't been solved. Yeah, if they were, yeah. Even if, they were, even if they weren't actually committed by the same person, from a media perspective, you'd group them together, wouldn't you, to create that hysteria around it. So it's intriguing that there isn't this you know, uh, mythical kind of, oh, you know, remember what happened there? Like, why don't I have that as a story from my childhood? Because yeah, there are plenty yeah. of things that I do remember. I mean, I was I often think about doing like Lindy Chamberlain as a story because, oh, my God, that felt like it was bigger than oh, my childhood yeah, at the time. yeah, yes. Um, but it, this it, is not ringing a lot of bells. Yeah, and, and I guess because they were disappearances for a while, not murders. Yes. Maybe that did something. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah, it wasn't such a big it, yeah. story because a girl could have run away from home or I don't know. Yeah. We don't know how they were killed, do we? Because they've all no. of them found too late. So they're assuming strangled or stabbed. But mm-hmm. So one, one of the things, we obviously spoke about the sheep offal that was being oh. disposed mm. of. So in, in, in case file they made reference to the fact that there were lots of wild dogs and foxes that would take care of the offal. And mm. so... What I'm, I guess, suspecting oh, is that... on his face. When you say take care, you mean put them in small plastic bags and put them in the freezer? Like, mm. <laughs> yeah, then we'll bury them. Like put, put them oh. so, yeah, you know, dispose of them properly, not just, <laughs> These humans just have dump left them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's bury them nicely. Do a better job of that. We're civilised, that's right, yes. But, but so the, the decomposition surprised me that it was so bad so quickly and I suspected that perhaps the wild dogs or foxes had something to do with that. Wild dogs. Mm. I don't know, but it just seems strange that, you know, so particularly Alison Rook found in the 5th of July after disappearing on the 30th of May, five weeks later, and there's nothing to help them, no, no evidence, no, I mean, she's got to be identified by dental records. Yeah, this this is frustrating. I, I... No, 
We should have a rule only only solved crimes. <laughs> I know. I did. I did wonder about that, and I thought I can't really We've done do a that. Mystery. We've done a couple of but mysteries before. It's yeah. just interesting that the two are you know ten years apart, more or less, in the same area, mm. literally the same area. Yeah. Gosh, Paul Frankston having that reputation. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Mm. Well, yes. As I say, I will sentence the perpetrator to a horrific death and you know, hopefully a very painful period of time leading up to that and maybe, you know, have them have, whether it's hallucinations or visions of their victims come back and torment them because they're a monster. Yeah. I'm not a particularly religious person, but I think if they've been able to get away with it in this life, then hopefully whatever happens after this, the they next don't. one, they don't get mm. an easy run. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Because that could mean many things. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just I thinking about reincarnation. Yeah. I'm like, what mm. would you be reincarnated as that would be a, not an easy run? A dung beetle? You know, what would you come back as that's... Sheep offal that gets taken care of by well, wild well, dogs no, and a foxes. Sheep. <laughs> a sheep. As a sheep with. offal. Well, that's what it becomes in the end. Mm. <laughs> and what have you, Clarky? What do you Well, think? so the, the other thing about this, I think, is that no one's done a bad job. Like it's not like you can sit there and no. go, the police should have done this or, no. you know, those women were doing something killer did a good risky. Job. There, there, was, there was none of that. It's just such no. a, I guess, a story where everyone kind of did their bit, but the killer, yeah. So, so you know, he's obviously can or does have a personality where he can talk people into a car. Yeah, he just seems unthreatening, you know. Yeah, it just yeah. seems like the kind of person that you'd be happy to. Any any woman of any age was quite happy to get in his car if that's what happened. I think I'm yeah. going to sentence the prisoner who wrote the letters. Yeah, fair what enough. What a, oh. That's not very like, nice. Isn't it Really? Did, yeah. No one wants that. And it, it doesn't even sound like he is, whilst he says he's doing it because, out of compassion for the families, the wording isn't compassionate. It, it, it's almost menacing. It's horrible. Oh, you're going to get some good things are going to happen. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Oh, you know, it's suggesting that they know a lot more than they actually no, that's knew. Awful. It yeah. was all bullshit and, yeah, oh, it's just awful. It is. Oh, yeah, nut punch, nut punch mm. city limits. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, uh, with knuckle dusters. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine being the family receiving that? It's one thing to send it to the police. It's another thing to send it to the family. Yeah, I think that, the, you know, that, that talk around the taunting nature too, particularly with the one he did send to the police. Yeah. You know, there's nothing. It's not helpful. It's not compassionate. I don't know time what, how he knew all the details. He's a time waster. He's a time waster. <laughs> He's a time waster. <laughs> True stretcher, time waster. My, time children, waster. my children are time wasters often, I'm telling you. True stretchers, time wasters. So yeah. can we, is it possible to sentence a time waster to? More time. Not time wasting? <laughs> Hard labour. Hard labour, yeah, maybe. Go and do some work, yeah. mate. Yeah. Community service, he can pick up rubbish. He can be the one that um, takes care of the offal. I was that just be... thinking, there's some sheep's offal he could take care of nicely <laughs> yeah. instead of leaving it, leaving it to the foxes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. All right, anyone else we want to sentence or any other closing remarks? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Just that complete um, empty feeling. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It just feels yeah. Still interesting. And if anyone out there does know anything, if anyone out there is going through 
some family members' belongings and they come across some items that may or may not have belonged to one of the six victims, please contact Victoria Police. Or Crime Stoppers. They, they were stoppers, actually yeah. saying that um, that's exactly one of the things that they had hoped would happen in that sort of 30 to 40-year yeah, window, that, right? that there would be a stash of things that don't belong. At some point, um, someone's going to find, yeah, a that's box of true, stuff. That's true, but also if it's not mm. being, well, I guess it's being more if, I don't feel it's that well publicised ever now. If you knew and yeah. you're like, oh. But would you, wouldn't you be like one of those things, let sleeping dogs lie, you know, it's like. Well, oh, that's. Looks yeah. like Pop was a bit of a. A time waster. serial killer. Had some jury <laughs> there that we oh, didn't oh, expect to Pop have, was yeah. a serial killer. He's a bit of a serial killer. Or let's, or let's be, Nana was a bit of a serial killer. Could have been anybody, who knows. Mm. True, but, true. You know, we always assume it's a man. Often is. Well, we don't know because in this case, yeah. as a result of the bodies being so decomposed, we don't know if they were sexually assaulted. Some of them were naked, some of them weren't naked. We don't know. Schmidt, did you know where Wiggers was in the early 80s? Hey. Wiggers was like, it's a bit small, <laughs> I think. Wiggers isn't much. It's now we're worried about where she is. Wiggers is only a little bit older than us, so I don't I think know. Wiggers was active at this time. Bit too and young. she was in Queensland, I'd say. Yeah, yeah she was but Queen, in Queensland. East and coast, you know. <laughs> she was a bit of truck driver. I know. Well, look. Well, lift. <laughs> if you're listening to this, Wiggers, please just. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He means that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> <laughs> Good one again, except disturbing, but well done. And as we say every week, miss you already. Well done. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Trial by Wine. You can contact us at trialbywine at gmail.com. Please rate, review and subscribe to Trial by Wine on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron at www.patreon.com, Trial by Wine. Or visit our website, www.trialbywine.com, to donate to us. Your support will help us cover many more cases and apply wacky sentences. We really appreciate you listening and hope you tell everyone about us. Our cover art is by John Christo and music is by Beauchamp from pixabay.com.